Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. Today I speak with Bhikkhu Analio about his book Rebirth and Early Buddhism in Current Research, published by Wisdom Publications. Bhikkhu Analio skillfully analyzes the early Buddhist doctrine of rebirth before discussing the debate around rebirth throughout Buddhist history. The last half of the book presents current research as well as a number of thought-provoking case studies. This book will be of great interest to both scholars and Buddhist practitioners alike. So, Bhikkhu Analio, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. What motivated you to write this book? Well, the topic of rebirth has never been something of real interest to me. So I am kind of in the situation of having written a whole book on a topic that I would normally not have spent much time on. When I was living back in Sri Lanka, I was reading through all of the publications by the Buddhist Publication Society, except for all those on rebirth, because I thought, what's what's there to discuss about? But now living in the West, I have become aware of the need to clarify at least that rebirth is part of what we know to be quite probably the historical Buddhist teachings. This is my main research area as an academic what we call early Buddhism, the about first two centuries in the history of Buddhism, roughly from the time when the Buddha would have lived until the time of King Ashoka. And we have textual records of this period, and there are different transmission lineages, so I compare them. And this kind of comparison, which is a little bit like what they also do with the Gospels, This kind of comparison gives us a fairly clear idea of what type of ideas and thinking could be attributed to the historical Buddha and what not. And there there cannot be any doubt that the idea of rebirth, how much unpalatable it may be to the modern Western mind, is an integral part of the historical Buddha's teaching in the way we can access it now. And so the tendency in some apologetic uh, circles in the West and sometimes also in Asia to pretend that rebirth is not really what the Buddha taught or maybe just something he took over from the ancient Indian background as a kind of acknowledgement of existing beliefs but not really taking it serious himself. This is not a correct representation. And so I was asked by friends to clarify this. And when I started to put my things together, that was just going to be an article, just an article on 
rebirth in early Buddhism, what is the position accorded to the idea of rebirth in early Buddhist thought, which eventually then became the first chapter of this book. When I started to put things together, I looked at the Pali chantings of a friend of mine from Sri Lanka, which then became eventually the fourth chapter. I was just sort of looking around. But when I listened to these chants, I actually found that they do not correspond to the Pali editions we have at our disposal, which means the Pali Text Society edition and the Asian editions. And then I thought like, wow, this is uh, this is something I need to follow up. And so when I researched this, then it became also, I became more aware of one, uh, the whole debate around rebirth, and second, of the different other types of evidence that have been researched and proposed as apparently suggesting uh, support for the idea of rebirth. And so this is how this whole book came into being, the four chapters. The first chapter, uh, the early Buddhist idea of rebirth. The second chapter, the debate on rebirth from ancient India to modern West. The third chapter, all kind of evidence from different fields of research that seem to support the idea of research. And then the fourth chapter, my case study, the, the study of the Pali chantings by a small Sri Lankan boy that in the form in which they have been recorded, he could not have learned them in this way at, in his present life in Sri Lanka. And going back to something that you said about how rebirth is viewed in contemporary Buddhism, it always strikes me that two out of three of the knowledges that the Buddha gained on the eve of his enlightenment pertained directly to seeing his own past lives as well as those of others. And these two knowledges were gained just previous to the enlightenment itself, which to me points to the centrality and importance of the concept of rebirth uh, in early Buddhism. Yet modern Buddhists, especially in the West, gloss over these two knowledges as if they were just incidental or extra bonuses that he picked up along the way to, to realizing the third knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. So could you walk us through exactly what is the early Buddhist understanding of rebirth and what that entails? Um, first of all, I fully agree with what you said just now. Uh, second, I would like to tease what you said uh, into two questions. One question, what could be the significance of the first two higher knowledges on the night of the Buddha's awakening to his actual realization? And the second one, what uh, are the basic ideas of early Buddhist rebirth? I think these are slightly distinct, and if you agree with me, I would like to take them up one after the other. Yes, of course. Please go ahead. So if we, if we just look at the Buddha's own progress to awakening, and we see how he had developed deep concentration experiences and then these immaterial spheres under his first two teachers. And when he didn't find that work, then he tried these ascetic practices and he find that also doesn't work. And then there comes this, this moment of reconsideration and looking back over what he has done so far and then even remembering uh, an absorption experience he had in his earlier youth. And so there's this whole progress, trying to find the path to awakening, and then this looking further back. 
And I think it is in the same direction of looking still further back uh, that he then developed a recollection of past lives. It's the same kind of trend looking mm. looking backwards. And if you look at the standard descriptions of past lives, it's like, uh, and I recollect my past lives, uh, and I had such a name, and I had such pleasure and pain, and such living circumstances, and then passing away, I was reborn there, and had such a name, such pleasure and pain, etc. So my own suggestion, this is not explicitly spelled out in the text, but this is just my understanding, would be that by looking back over these past lives, he would have seen how strongly we are identified, like now here, I am Alex Carroll. This is my name. This is what I do. But then you look back and you find, oh, sometime back I was Peter Smith. Hmm. And now I like this, but at that time I like that. And now I'm like this, and at that time I was like that. And it just felt so much I, me and mine. And so my, my, my suggestion is that this vivid experience of past existence with a completely different sense of identity, that this was the uh, question mark that made him eventually realize the not-self. That this whole sense of identity is a construct. It's just a construct of the mind. And then when he proceeded to see the same happening with others, the divine eye seeing the passing away and re-arising of living beings according to their karmic deeds, this actually then shows the corollary to not-self, dependent arising, conditionality, causality. Because of doing such and such a thing, you get this other type of identity. You get this other type of life, these other living circumstances. So in my personal reading, and I must be very clear that this is not implicit, uh, explicit in the original sources, this is something implicit, that I'm trying to draw out. In my personal reading, the first two higher knowledges are absolutely crucial. Without these first two higher knowledges, the third one would not have been possible. Mm. It requires a dawning insight into not-self and a dawning insight into causality to, to, to come to the realization in the third watch of the night, the destruction of the influxes, which then later is being expressed as the realization of the Four Noble Truth. What is the connection between the early Buddhist understanding of rebirth and the doctrine of dependent origination? Rebirth is just as the continuity during life, part of a process of causes and condition, devoid of any kind of substantial permanent entity. That is the basic connection. The doctrine of dependent arising is often described with the help of 12 links in the suttas. But uh, we need to keep in mind that the doctrine actually refers to the basic principle. In the Banga Sutta 20th discourse of the uh, Nidana Sangyut, it's very clearly stated. Uh, I will teach you monastics dependent arising and things that are dependently arisen. So these 12 links is just things that are dependently arisen. That is one particular formulation of dependent arising, which became particularly prominent because it seems to mirror in part a Vedic creation myth. 
This has been studied by Jurovic in a very interesting article published in the Journal of the Polytech Society. So instead of the myth of creation, the Buddha is in a way debunking that myth, showing that uh, the end result is dukkha and showing the way out, the cessation of dukkha. But the proliferation of this 12-link formula, the prominence, I should say, not the proliferation, uh, has then led to different interpretation strategies. And one of these, particularly prominent in later exegesis, is to cut these 12 links into three lifetimes. Okay. That is one interpretation. It's not the only one. And we need to see that already... Abhidhamma exegesis of Theravada and Savastivada tradition give this as one interpretation, not the only one, and an alternative interpretation of the whole series of 12 things as referring to a single moment. So it's just one perspective. It's a perspective very prominent in traditional Buddhism. But I don't really think that this later interpretation is the key to correlating dependent arising with rebirth. I think the key could rather be found in the Mahanidana Sutta of Divya because there it speaks, in fact, explicitly about rebirth. And Mahanidana of uh, Divya gives us uh, a particular aspect of the series of dependent arising, namely the reciprocal conditioning of consciousness and name and form. Here, consciousness is our just knowing, just being aware. Form is the experience of matter, and name are like mental activities. They do not include consciousness. That is a later development. Mm. And so the whole of our continuity, even right now as the two of us are speaking, is a reciprocal conditioning process between consciousness on the one side and all the mental activities responsible for the formation of a concept, a name, together with material aspects on the other side. And these two depend on each other. And this kind of dependency in that very discourse is then applied to rebirth. As if, if consciousness uh, uh, goes into the mother's womb and doesn't get a foothold, will name and form arise, etc. So the same principle explains rebirth. Explains rebirth without the existence of any kind of permanent entity or soul or whatever. And this is quite important because often we find that those not sufficiently familiar with this doctrine then see a contrast. They say, how can there be a rebirth if there's not self? But that is a misunderstanding. Not self does not mean that there's nothing at all. It just means there's no permanent entity. But a process yeah. of causes and condition responsible for continuity in this life and responsible for continuity beyond this body in another life does not require a permanent self. It just requires causes and conditions. And these causes and conditions is precisely found in this reciprocal conditioning between name and form. I hope that was not too abstruse. No, it's very interesting, actually. So let's help me try to ex understand this a little bit more. I think one of the questions which you've already in, in part answered, um, that you hear from many Buddhist practitioners or, or, or academics or people who are just sympathetic to Buddhism, is what is it that actually continues after death? What is it that continues from life to life? 
And in the light of the answer you just gave, how would you you answer that question? I would point the question, first of all, back at the question, ask what is it that continues in this life? I would say it would be a continuity of experience. So why should that continuity of experience not continue beyond the physical body? Hmm, that's a fair question. And, and help me ex- understand this as well. So what happens in between death and rebirth? What happens between the end of one life and the beginning of another then? Well, the early discourses are not concerned with giving us a detailed breakdown of what exactly happens at that time. This is part of the whole setup. You see, the discourses are records of individual meetings the Buddha had with people. They are not yet a complete system like we get later with Abhidharma exegesis. So we don't really get a very detailed breakdown of what exactly happens at that time. What we know is that this must somehow involve consciousness. This is this passage from Mahadhyana Sutta. The process of consciousness somehow continues. And we get a simile in one sutta that describes how, uh, I think it's a piece of wood that is burning, can set fire to another piece of wood that is just close by but not touching it. And the f- I mean, we know that from, the, from, 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 from wildfire that this actually happens. And that, that transition of the fire from the one burning piece to the non-burning piece happens in support of the wind. The heat is being carried over and the other thing starts to burn. So this is just a simile to illustrate how there could be a transition without a physical support. And we know from another discourse that there are so-called underlying tendencies, anusayas, underlying tendencies in the mind to anger, sensual desire, etc. And in this other discourse, we find that these tendencies are said to be already present in a newborn infant. So in some way, consciousness must be carrying with it these underlying tendencies from one life to the next. And another question, of course, is... Yeah. Another question, of course, is the issue of memory, the carrying over of memory, which is very central in all these um, modern research. And here we have a problem because early Buddhism doesn't really explain memory. We don't get a clear-cut explanation. What is memory? How does it work? So this is kind of left to later exegesis to try to flesh out, which they are not always too successful at. But obviously, memory must continue because otherwise, how would the Buddha or others be able to remember their own past lives? So memory, memory in some way must be part of this consciousness package. Package is not a good word. This flow, this condition flow of being conscious this flow of experience, as you called it, that is held to proceed from one life to the next. And according to the suttas, what role does Kama play in the process of, of rebirth in determining its outcome? Yeah, that is already uh, there with this uh, vision of the divine eye that the Buddha is on record for having developed in the second watch of the night of awakening, that he saw that peop- those who have done good deeds receive positive results, and those who have done bad deeds receive bad results. And then there's another discourse which teases this a little bit more apart so that it's not just a one-to-one correlation, uh, explaining that uh, these uh, results of what you do do not necessarily happen immediately. 
So there could even be somebody having the same ability of uh, seeing other beings passing away, be reborn, and see, look, oh, this person did something very evil, and wow, he's got a very good rebirth. Or this person was such a nice person, and look where he ended up, my God. And so the, the thing is simply that the idea behind that is that there's a huge amount of past lives and an incredible amount of different activities you and I have done in the past. And it is not necessary what we did most recently that will determine what will happen to us at the time we pass away. And for this reason, you can't really calculate the law of karma. You can only be sure of general principles. And now we alluded to this in the beginning of our conversation, but there's a debate in contemporary Buddhism about the dispensability of the concept of rebirth and Buddhist practice and understanding. And how would the suttas answer this debate? And how does the first step of the Noble Eightfold Path right view pertain to this? There are different formulations of right view. And uh, one of these includes the idea of rebirth. But another one just uses the Four Noble Truth. And so I think, uh, I mean, anyway, we have to tease apart whether somebody is really practicing with a view to reach awakening. If someone is just doing mindfulness for health purposes, then this whole issue anyway is not so relevant. But for somebody to progress on the path to awakening, it would be important to avoid wrong view. And wrong view is always being defined as the denial of rebirth. So to say outrightly, rebirth is just totally impossible, this is just nonsense, that would actually amount to wrong view and that would be an obstacle. But uh, it is not necessary to then say, okay, rebirth must be right, I must believe this now. One can simply take an agnostic position and say, look, I don't know. This is one of those things that's there in these discourses, but I, I have no way for myself to... To be sure about that, I can't prove it, I can't confirm it, so I just let it be as it is. And I focus on the Four Noble Truth as a diagnostic scheme to set about my own personal dukkha, to see that my craving is responsible for that, and that by training myself, I can get out of it. And that should be enough. Mm. And, and to follow up with your answer, um, to me, it sounds like you personally believe that the soteriological value of Buddhism is somehow reduced or diminished, um, not if you're agnostic to the concept of rebirth, but if you outright reject it. Um, and in other words, uh, can we understand Buddhism or Buddhist practice uh, as it's preserved in the Pali Canon without the concept of rebirth? I think that is difficult because you're cutting out an essential part of the whole doctrine. And I think that's also not really uh, the proper approach. I think, and this is not just about Buddhism, it's about any kind of different culture, different system of thought. It is not really appropriate for me to say, uh, this whole part, chuck it out, if I want to understand. And that should be really the key for us. I mean, we are Westerners, we have our own cultural uh, background and our own ideas, and we are perfectly entitled to that. There's no question of having to chuck that out to take over something else. But we should also not approach any other culture, system of thought, knowledge system, religious practice, with this kind of arrogance that this, 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 out. Then we will not be able to, to, to really understand and benefit. 
I think the whole dialogue between the West and Asia, science and religion, whatever you want to frame it, it really requires that both sides meet on a level of mutual respect. And so for me, suppose I don't, I, I just find rebirth absurd and it's totally nonsense, but I would still have to acknowledge, look, it's there in the suttas. And in some way, I have to make sense of it. doesn't mean I have to take it on board for myself as my personal opinion, but I should be willing to, to respect the fact that it is there and, not, not, and, and, and realize that if I completely throw this out, then I, I, I'm not in the position to understand. And that is really what, what, what it is all about. I mean, we want to understand. Understanding makes us wiser, more mature, and broadens our perspective. So if from the outset I narrowed down my perspective, I'm not in a very good position to really understand. I allow my own confirmation bias, my own biases to, to, to limit the field of, of what I can take into account. And that is just not the very wise approach. Uh, uh, let's step back and, and speak about the context in which Buddhism arose. Do you think that it's possible that the concept of rebirth became part of Buddhism simply because this was one of the ideas floating around in ancient India during the time of the Buddha? Yeah, I think we already touched on that briefly at the beginning of our discussion, that this is uh, this, this suggestion is simply not borne out by the material we have because there were a number of teachers at the Buddha's time who denied rebirth. So there's no reason for the Buddha not to deny it also if he didn't believe in it. So uh, I'd like to turn the conversation now towards the anecdotal evidence of, of rebirths in modern times. Could you briefly walk us through some of the major research into rebirth up to now and, and shed some of the light on uh, and shed some light on some of their findings? Then there's um, maybe maybe cut it into on the four areas that I also use in the book. So one thing is near death experiences. Yeah, sure. And this seems to be something that we have had from ancient times, but in recent times, because of our improved medical abilities, these things have become much widespread and better reported. And so there's this basic conundrum that cardiac arrest, brain shouldn't be working at all. And these people afterwards, when they are resuscitated, they have all these vivid memories. And some of these memories seem to be about what was actually being done to their bodies while they should have not noticed anything, been unable to know and do anything. So this is very intriguing, and it puts a little bit into question the paradigm of much of modern science that basically the mind is equated with the brain. And for this reason also the whole apologetic move of trying to sidestep the fact that Buddhism teaches rebirth because it's believed to be unscientific, because we know from science everything is in the brain, which is actually not quite true because this paradigmatic assumption has never been proven. It's just being reinforced continually by the very fact of being a paradigm. Then there are past life regressions using hypnosis. They have some interesting findings there, but the hypnosis and these kind of memories, uh, they're probably the weakest uh, kind of argument. What uh, I personally think is a very strong argument is uh, children's memories of past lives. We are particularly indebted to Stevenson for a lot of research. He's 
Radigri spent most of his life traveling to different countries and just recording all these different instances. And some of them are really striking. And the fourth area is xenoglossy, the ability to communicate in a language you haven't learned. And it is in the area of xenoglossy that my own case study falls, which I think is probably the first really strong sound case of xenoglossy, because the other cases, at least those of which I'm aware, are not so strong, not so convincing. So let's talk about that case. Um, could you tell us about who this individual is and, and how you came to personally know him? He is a Sri Lankan, and uh, he his uh, foster mother's house was just up the road from where I had a meditation center, so we naturally came to know each other as simply as neighbors. And he at a very young age, uh, uh, started to chant in Pali. And his mother at first uh, tried to stop him because she just thought he was, he was, he was nuts. But then later, it was, this was actually uh, taken serious and they started to record his different chantings. He seems to have started at an age about, at an age of four years and continued until he was about 11. And these um, chantings, I was very much drawn to them from the outset because of the melodious way he chants. It's uh, completely different from what we normally get in Sri Lanka. Uh, Normal chanting in Sri Lanka is very, it's not very melodious. And uh, unless you are grown up to it, you will probably not enjoy it as something very beautiful from a musical perspective. But these chantings are very, very musical, very lovely to hear, and also very slow. He has a different time rhythm from ours. Like if I do it just in English speaking, the normal chanting would be like, and he's like, very, very measured and slow. And so these qualities uh, were really interesting to me. And in fact, I, I learned uh, Pali chanting from him not of the stuff that he remembered, because by that time he didn't remember anything anymore, but just of uh, other Pali suttas. But at that time, because we were both uh, interested in Dhamma, we didn't really talk much about rebirth. As I mentioned at the outset, I was not so much into that whole topic, and he was also not so much into that whole topic, because as a child, hmm. uh, he had been exposed to all this... Uh, cheap kind of curiosity of people. And so he was quite reluctant to talk about his past life experiences. And he was very happy that he met somebody who who was like, oh, you remember past lives? So what? Let's talk about something else. <laughs> it was kind of like relieving to him. And that was just my attitude. I was only interested in the quality of the chantings and then just to, to talk about Dhamma in general. And we kept in contact as good friends. And it was, as I said, only with this recent idea of writing about rebirth that I then took a closer look at these chantings, discovered these uh, significant facts. And then I contacted him again and asked for permission to research this whole thing. And you said that um, in addition to the chanting, he also recalls experiences of a past life or past lives. Is that correct? He remembers several past lives, yeah. Hmm. And could you share maybe some of the details with us here? 
Uh, I think to share details of that, I would first have to ask his permission. So I think okay. it would not be appropriate. But I mean, there's right. one little story which I think I have not given in the book that might just suffice. And this is something I'm sure he's fine with me sharing that. So uh, he was particularly teaching me to recite the Satipatthana Sutta. That is the discourse on mindfulness on which at that time I was doing a PhD it was later published by Winterhurst in 2003. And so there's this section on uh, Sampajanya, on clear comprehension. And it describes different activities, bodily activities, that we should be mindful and clearly comprehending. And Samingiti Pasarite, Sampajana Karihoti, when stretching the arm and bending the arm, we should have clear comprehension. And so we are chanting through that. And then he asked me, Bante, what? What is what does this mean, Samingite Pasarite? Because every time I chant it, I feel like giggling. And I said, there's nothing to giggle. <laughs> this is just stretching and bending. No. And he was quite disappointed. You could see his face like, oh, well, what to do? <laughs> so this episode stayed with me. And then about a couple of months later, I don't know exactly when, I was studying the commentary <coughs> Excuse me, the commentary to this part of the Satipatthana Sutta, and it gives a story. It says, you know why it's good to be careful when you bend and stretch your arms? There was this Dharma talk being given at night, and the monks and the bhikkhus and the bhikkhunis, the nuns, they were sitting in rows behind each other. And one bhikkhu, he stretched his arm without looking where there was place to stretch his arm. And what happened is that his hand landed on the breast of a bikuni that was sitting behind him. And when he realized what he was having in his hands, he wanted to pull back his hand. But by that time, the bikuni grabbed his hand and put it back on her breast. <laughs> and in the end, the two, of course, disrobed and became married. <laughs> so this is a story that really makes you giggle, especially if you're a monk and living a celibate life. You go like, <laughs> better be careful. So this explains why on chanting Saminjite Pasarite, he would be wanting to giggle. He didn't no longer know the story, why it was funny, but he still had in his memory that this is a place where that is a little bit funny. And you said that his chanting differs from uh, chanting as practiced in contemporary Sri Lanka in, in terms of melody and rhythm. But are there also other differences between the uh, chants that were recorded um, when he was a young child and what is currently chanted in Sri Lanka? There are uh, differences in the wording. And this is what I study in the fourth chapter, that he has some, he chants some uh, discourses in, in a way that none of the editions we have corresponds to exactly. But we have some evidence that some type of such discourse existed. I mean, one example is the a listing of anatomical parts in again in the Satipatthana Sutta. In the suttas, they never mention the brain, Matalungam. That is only mentioned in the commentaries. But he recites the sutta and he mentions the brain. Or in the Mahanidana Sutta, which we mentioned earlier, he jumps a whole section, a huge section. And this is a very usual type of error that happens in oral transmission that because one keyword here, one keyword five paragraphs down, and you just jump those five paragraphs which, without really noticing it. 
But the very fact that he does that shows that this is an authentic recording. Because anyway, who would have tried to make this up, fake this, trick this in some way, they would never have allowed for such a huge loss of text to occur. Because it's actually only since my own research in the beginning of the 21st century that we know that such major loss of text occurred. So back in the 80s in Sri Lanka, nobody knew that, and it would have been defeating their purposes if they were trying to cheat to build in such a major error. And so do you feel that uh, an explanation could be that he conceivably picked up some chanting by absorbing them from his surroundings, seeing that he grew up in, I assume, a Buddhist family in Sri Lanka? Nobody in Sri Lanka would have chanted the text in that way. And so I guess there's also a coherence in, in the style of his chanting as well between uh, between one chant to another. Is that correct in terms of melodic and rhythmic structure? There are some of the chantings which are up on the Wisdom webpage so anybody can download and listen to them. And where can is that webpage found in the book? Um, or which webpage are you referring to? It, it, is also mentioned, it is also mentioned in the book in the conclusions. Um, and so how old is Damaruwan now? Um, I think he's in his 50s now. In his early 50s, yeah. And uh, in, in the book, you also, you also talk about how this is um, a characteristic of how children's memories of past lives fade over the course of their life. Is there any theory as to why that might be or, or how that happens? Well, he seems to have kept on these memories for fairly long from the case studies by Stevenson. It seems normally they lose that when they are about eight, eight years old or nine. The amount of data we have on that does not really allow us to draw definite conclusions. But I think that by the time you become 8, 9, 10, 11, uh, you're really reaching a, a stage of growing up and forming your own identity. And so it is quite natural that this former identity is being left behind. And also for most of these children, and definitely for Damaruan, this is actually not a pleasant experience. They are they're switching between two personalities and uh, they don't really know how to coordinate these two personalities and also don't know how to deal with the attention that one of the personalities gets or the other. Then one moment he wants to be a little child and just jump around and the other moment he suddenly is like an adult and gives this very uh, serious and strong advice. And it's, it's, a, it's a difficult and frustrating experience. And some of the stories Stevenson has there were and they remember the, their loved one from the past life and still are with that and can't really settle in the present life. So I think for the children, it's also a relief when they are able to forget these memories and be fully in their present life here now. I can imagine that that would indeed be very stressful for a child to have so much attention paid to you simply because of something that you maybe recall or, or an experience you share. And for a child, that must be extremely terrifying to have uh, so much attention and so much media um, covering them and following them in their daily life as a child. Um, which I, I guess very much explains his attitude to how he was very delighted to not speak to you about rebirth or uh, certain aspects about that when you first met him at the meditation center. Well, thank you very much, uh, Biko Analio, for taking the time to speak to us today and come on the podcast. Um, 
I just want to again say the title of your book is Rebirth in Early Buddhism and Current Research, published by Wisdom Publications. Um, what's for you next? What are you currently working on? I'm working on uh, a book, and this has become twin books on mindfulness. I have become aware that the whole mindfulness movement uh, that is spreading all over the world would benefit from more detailed information on early Buddhist mindfulness. So I'm researching, I've gathered all the passages on mindfulness in the in the canon, comparing them and trying to develop a clear idea of what is actually mindfulness in order to clarify the early Buddhist roots for the current use of mindfulness in mindfulness-based stress reduction and other kind of applications. That's definitely a, a very tiny study, I must say. That's um, as, as mindfulness becomes more and more mainstream, that's uh, definitely something that would fill a lot of gaps in our knowledge. Well, I definitely look forward to seeing your work on this uh, on this topic in the future. And I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to New Books and Buddhist Studies with Alex Carroll. If you're interested in learning about other New Books and Buddhist Studies, head over to newbooksnetwork.com or search for New Books Network wherever you get your podcasts. Audio used with permission from Musique Delicieuse and is taken from the song Small Flower by Para Furcuva.